For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, listen to what the next generation of broadcasters wants to say as youth between 5th and 12th grade compete for recognition in the NPR Student Podcast Challenge. A conversation with Professor Brenna Wynn-Greer, the author of Represented, the Black Image Makers Who Reimagined African-American Citizenship. And I'll talk with Pulitzer Prize-winning author and journalist Geraldine Brooks. Her 2001 novel, Year of Wonders, tells the story of a 17th century plague with many aspects that ring true today. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Who will be the voices of the future? The NPR Student Podcast Challenge is a nationwide talent search for youth between 5th and 12th grades. Earlier this year, these aspiring broadcasters were invited to create their own audio stories from the ground up, based on any topic that they chose. Their teachers submitted these stories to NPR, and the finalists will be announced later this month. The sound quality in these clips may vary, but one thing you will hear is a very high level of enthusiasm for getting the word out about these students' favorite topics. These podcast excerpts all come from the Catalina Foothills School District. Imagine you are Wyatt Earp in the legendary shootout at OK Corral. Tensions are high. It is you, your brothers, and your friend John H. Doc Holliday against the Clanton-McClory gang. It all comes down to this moment. What will you do? It is still a mystery. Who fired the first shot at the legendary shootout at OK Corral? But it made Tombstone a very famous place once word got out about the shootout. The shootout is very interesting, and I highly recommend that you research it if you are interested. Do you like to read books? I love to read. I don't like nonfiction books. They are too realistic for me. I like reading books about fictional worlds. It's interesting to see that books went from just humans to a mix of humans and mythical creatures to totally non-human characters and worlds. My favorite fantasy book series is Wings of Fire. It has all dragons in it. Wings of Fire does have humans in it, but dragons are the main focus. Except for Dragon Slayer, which has humans as the main characters, which totally ruins it for me. My point is, every genre has its ups and downs. Have you ever wondered what the most common dinosaur in Arizona is? Well, you're not alone, because today we plan on solving this question. Hello and welcome to our podcast. Today we'll be talking about what the most common dinosaur in Arizona was, where you would find it, and what the most common habitat would be. This is how we'll talk about it. First, we'll break up the three different periods of dinosaurs, Triassic, Jurassic, and Cretaceous. Then we'll find the most common dinosaur and habitat in each of the periods. 
the dinosaur that I think would be the most common is the Coelophysis from the Triassic. I think that this will be the most common because many skeletons have been found, and many of them have been found in Arizona, and maybe several other states that are close to Arizona. Now it's time for our interview. We're going to interview my sister, who, despite being only eight, managed to memorize many facts about dinosaurs. She's practicing to be a paleontologist when she grows up by digging in our backyard around the wash. What do you think the most common dinosaur in Arizona was? It would definitely not be anything in the Jurassic, either the Triassic or the Cretaceous. I'd say maybe little Coelophysis. Coelophysis? Why do you think Coelophysis would have been able to survive? It was little, quick, likely smart. It had enough food, right? Oh, yeah. Well, we found evidence that hunted lizards. And probably mammals also. Yeah, likely mammals. Mainly lizards, maybe even insects. Sonorosaurus was lucky enough to become our state dinosaur, but Acrocanthosaurus could have been more survivable. Well, Sonorosaurus likely slow-moving, bigger than Acrocanthosaurus. Yes, but bigger doesn't really matter unless if it's ginormous, and it definitely wasn't one of the most ginormous dinosaurs. Yeah, it likely went for size rather than speed. In the end, we decided on Coelophysis as the most common dinosaur in Arizona. (laughs) Thank you for listening to this podcast. It was very fun to make it. I really hope that you enjoyed. Bye! That was just a sample of the audio productions that were submitted to the NPR Student Podcast Challenge from the Catalina Foothill School District. Tune in next week to hear some more. My guest, Brenna Wynn Greer, is an associate professor of history at Wellesley College. Her book, Represented, The Black Image Makers Who Reimagined African-American Citizenship, looks back at the collaboration in the civil rights era between activists and the media that resulted in a new framing for the popular portrayal of black life. First, Greer explains that her research started with, in her own words, an extended battle that she waged with a single photo of civil rights activist Rosa Parks. I grew up as a black woman with a particular idea of Rosa Parks being this elderly, you know, woman with tired feet who broke character and single-handedly started the the modern civil rights movement. And I had that image of her all the way into my graduate studies. And then when I started doing research on black women's activism in, in Montgomery, I found you know, that Rosa Parks has this extensive activist history that other historians have written about. And I kept being frustrated by how she and other activists, but also the media framed her. And then this one photograph really represents that to me, which is the famous photograph of her sitting on a bus, looking out the window, and there's a, there's a white man seated behind her. But it, to me, represents this polite protester, which I think is kind of become the prominent accepted ideal of appropriate black protest. That idea hides so much that would be very useful to know about Rosa Parks. I realized that students, whatever race they were, students really actually are so used to and actually want some representative figure when you're talking about black history. And as soon as 
those historical actors become really complex, it becomes almost impossible for them to conceive of them and deal with them. And so a lot of what my book is rooted in is the question of why do we get these particular ideas of black people and why are we so attached to them? And some of the story of that is actually what African-American activists and cultural producers, um, marketers, public relations people, photographers were doing as well. In your book, you focus your story around several key individuals who had great influence in the black media sphere at different parts of the 20th century. And I'd like for you to tell us about one of these personalities that you study in your book. You know, the person who's really central in the book is a man named Moss Kendricks, who I had never heard of before I started research for my dissertation, actually. And I truly stumbled onto him, which, you know, in hindsight, I I really find incredible because of his importance in terms of the representation of African-Americans in popular culture at that point in time, but also his role within how consumer culture was forming after World War II and his role in many government agencies and, and initiatives. Um, he started his public relations career essentially at, in college and then ended up working on behalf of the New Deal and then um, on behalf of the government during World War II, and then became a public relations expert for large white corporations, most notably Coca-Cola. And one of the things that kept happening as I was writing or talking about him in different conference settings, say, is that by focusing on his business, that again was something that was not very comfortable for a lot of audiences. And my audiences kept trying to make me make him into a civil rights figure. And I'm not saying that he didn't have civil rights politics or that he wasn't invested in civil rights campaigns, but he was an entrepreneur. He was a capitalist. And the argument that I'm making in my book is that precisely because of his enterprise, precisely because of the work that he did as an image maker, he was able to put out into popular culture mainstream images of African-Americans that served their agendas in terms of civil rights, that cast them as normal Americans, by and large, by way of their consumer activity. He made African-Americans not exceptional, as was often the objective of earlier respectability politics efforts, but he made them common in a commonly American sense in the post-war period. But I think that his effect, his role, belongs in the story when there's been no place for him, because again, as I said, he doesn't fit one of the molds that we're used to or want in our African-American histories and certainly in our civil rights histories. I came away from it thinking of him as a high-powered executive who moved between the private and public sectors. And it actually made me wish that there was a program like Mad Men that could be made around him you know, absolutely, and, and his achievements. So I was particularly interested in the chapter about the competing media landscape of print publications that were popular at the time, because right. everyone was reading Life and Time. But then something like Ebony or a publication that I didn't know anything about, Negro Digest, comes along. And there was a watershed moment in 1955 on so many levels with the murder of Emmett Till. Anytime you read anything extensive about that case, Generally, there'll be mention of Jet Magazine, and Jet Magazine was the sister magazine to Ebony Magazine, both produced by John Johnson and Johnson Publishing. 
And Jet Magazine was this weekly digest that was little bits of news across many, many areas. And after Emmett Till's lynching, Jet Magazine was the publication that reported on it. And there were pictures that one of the photographers employed by Johnson Publishing had taken of um, Till's corpse at the funeral home. And many people have probably seen this, but they're horrific images. Something that we should make clear about that is that Emmett Till's mother approved of the photographs appearing in print. She wanted people to see the results of the violence. She gave that photographer permission to take those photographs just as she had made sure that her son's casket was open and allowed the public to view his body. And so those pictures ran in the magazine. And, you know, people my father's age, my father's in his mid-70s, will routinely say, or civil rights activists, identify seeing those photographs as this awakening moment for them in terms of, you know, their sense of themselves as, as a black person and the vulnerability that came with that. And then just the work that needed to be done to prevent something from like that happening again. And one of the arguments that I make in my book, which can be somewhat controversial, is that John Johnson, his running those pictures and him telling that story, there were a lot of business decisions behind that. And that telling that story was profitable. And because he made what I think are good business decisions in telling that story. It's part of the reason that it is, as one civil rights activist has called it, the most advertised lynching in U.S. history. And again, you put all those terms on this horrific event, and because I think the way that we are primed to think about entrepreneurial ventures or capitalist ventures, it may sound like I am minimizing or trivializing or talking about that in crass terms, but I actually think it's precisely because of the decisions that Johnson made that we do know about this lynching. And it was the last of its kind, certainly not the last act of, of violence against African Americans or even that horrific, but there's a reason we know about it. And that's Mamie Till Bradley and that's John Johnson. And Jet Magazine told that story when national news outlets were not. You know, it certainly appeared in the New York Times for, a, you know, a bit, a little article and other places. But otherwise, it dropped out very quickly. And Jet Magazine reported on it throughout the fall of 1955. A photographer who contributed heavily to both white and black publications was Gordon Parks. And mm-hmm. he has a slogan that I find really interesting that you share in the book. The camera is a weapon. Gordon Parks became a photographer in the Office of War Information, but on his way to that, he learned photography by studying photographers from the New Deal era, from the Farm Security Administration. And he used his camera, particularly in Chicago, when he lived in Chicago on the South Side, to document the living conditions of African Americans, um, to document what it meant to be black in America at that point in time. And on the basis of those photographs, he was actually brought into the Office of War Information. But as part of that agency, which was a propaganda agency, his job was to produce photographs that spoke to the, the strength and unity and spirit of the United States at that point in time. As a photographer of the Office of War Information, he was able to produce images of black people that actually, I argue, wrote them into 
the the narrative of Americanness. He presented them as being patriots. He presented them as being hard workers. He presented them as aspiring to, you know, the American way of life and family and, you know, being uh, part of a neighborhood and being a good civic member. So he had to walk a pretty interesting line, I think. And then he also then became, you know, quite a successful paid photographer. But he always presented himself and I think conceived of himself as an activist artist, someone who used his camera to put forward images that might otherwise not be part of the visual landscape. Thanks to Brenna Wynne Greer for talking to me about her book, Represented, The Black Image Makers Who Reimagined African-American Citizenship. The best-selling career of Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist and journalist Geraldine Brooks began in 2001 with Year of Wonders. It told the story of Anna Frith, a woman in the year 1666 who was struggling to make sense of what's happening to her small English village during an outbreak of the bubonic plague. I wanted to ask Geraldine Brooks about Year of Wonders and how she wrote about pandemic life in such detail more than 20 years before the world began to experience it firsthand. Well, you know, the thing that's so extraordinary about what overtook us all, I think, is that none of us were prepared for it in the least degree. And I remember just around about this time last year, um, I was in Paris doing a writer's residency at the American Library there. And Everybody was in total denial that this was going to be a serious thing at all. And then the first thing you know, we were washing our hands and disinfecting things, but nobody was really thinking it was going to have any impact. And then when it did become clear that it was serious, we all thought it would be a few weeks. None of us thought we'd still be living like this a year on, I don't think. And I think that comes from our privileged position um, as people who've lived with modern medicine that can take care of things. Whereas for the, for the people in my village in the 17th century, they expected uh, catastrophes to befall them all the time. We've just been very lucky. I found a real parallel between the superstitions and paranoia that arose between different groups in your village as compared to today. Things like people becoming radicalized, the idea of following quackery, which, of course, at that time, quackery was a pretty broad (laughs) field. (laughs) Indeed. But we still see that coming, people wanting to believe in cures, wanting to believe in um, abracadabra, as someone says in the book, and, and also opportunists arising out of nowhere to take advantage of the situation and to play on people's fears. There are parallels, and the parallel that I saw very vividly early on in the pandemic was the otherizing that went on, the idea of, you know, pulling up the drawbridge, not to keep other people safe from us the way the people of Eam did in their self-sacrificing decision, but the idea that we shouldn't let the other into our community. Um, and I was, I was a, a little appalled, I have to say, 
there was a very strong feeling in certain segments of the population here on Martha's Vineyard that people shouldn't be allowed to flee the city and come to their summer homes um, because they might bring infection with them. Yeah, the suspicions that are alive and well in the village because no one understands how the plague is transmitted. And they didn't have a germ theory of disease. So they, they understood that it was contagious, but they had no idea why. And then, you know, of course, you're living in a, in a time of some um, religious confusion. So they've just been through um, the Reformation and uh, all kinds of tumult in the English churches. And so it's a very interesting time because it's right on that turning point where superstition is giving way to science, but the two are still battling it out there and they're both equally strong and it's unclear which way it's going to go. Yeah, there's a shipment of fabric that comes to uh, your character, George Vickers, and he is making clothing for the villagers. And even afterwards, the fabric it plays a plays a role in terms of distributing the plague among the people in the village. And that slow, creeping dread of realizing what was going on once George comes down with the illness, to think that the vector of disease might be the clothing, which no one wants to sacrifice. The advice is burn it. But people are like, no, I've paid good money for this. I, I want this. And that proves to be one of the methods of undoing everyone's health. Yeah, you know, and also it's a very uh, materially sparse setting, you know. So a piece of clothing was a very valuable thing. People perhaps only had two pieces of clothing. They didn't have closets full like we do. And you can see this very clearly because people would enumerate everything they owned in their wills. So I had a very clear picture of the material culture of that village from those wills where they enumerated every bowl and every chair that they owned. There are a couple of women in the village, a mother and daughter, who are herbalists. And at one point, some of the villagers turn on them as witches. And for some reason, I thought of Dr. Fauci, and I thought of the idea that someone speaking wisdom or truth on a subject that people are so terrified about can be rejected so quickly. You would think that people would want to listen to experts, but sometimes experts take the brunt of being seen as somehow harbingers. Well, absolutely. And and particularly if uh, if that person happens to be telling you to do something that you'd rather not do. But you might still consider using a witch's recipe to boil urine and hair. <laughs> Indeed. I mean, uh, our species is a very difficult one. You know, we... Uh, we're not always as rational as, as we could be. Well, I'd like you to think back, if you would, Geraldine, and tell me what you think was the first love for you. Was it history or literature? Definitely literature. History came to me. Um, it's a case of be careful who you marry. Um, my husband was a very avid historian, and uh, so I was, I was much more interested in futuristic books and fantasy, and he he was the one who dragged me into a fascination with the past. That interests me, because I myself lean very heavily towards science fiction and fantasy. And reading a novel in a historical setting is something rare for me, actually. To be quite honest, um, it's rather rare for me, too, because even though I write in that genre, I read in it infrequently. I see. Um, 
It seems to me that your book, Year of Wonders, might have been written at a quick pace. Is that true? Well, what happened with it is um, I encountered the story when I was still very much working as a journalist. I was a foreign correspondent for the Wall Street Journal for a decade, and um, a, a large part of that was spent covering events in the Middle East. And that was what I was doing. I had a short break. It was just before um, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. But just before that, things were quiet enough for me to take a few days off. And I decided to do something very different and get away from hot, dusty places and go somewhere wet and green. And so my husband and I went for a hiking or rambling holiday in the Pennines, and that's when we stumbled across Eam and the fascinating story of what had occurred there. And it just took root in my imagination, but it wasn't that I ran home and quit my job and (laughs) went up to the garret to become a novelist. I didn't do that at all. I went on covering contemporary catastrophes for almost a decade before um, my first son was born, and I decided that I didn't want to go off on long open-ended assignments to dangerous places anymore and I needed to find something else I could possibly do and that was when I sat down to try and tell the story of what had happened in EAM in that year and because I'd had 10 years to think about it and cogitate about it it did come to me quite quickly and I have to say it lulled me into a bit of a false sense of security about writing a novel because that wasn't the case in, <laughs> in uh, any other novel that I've ever written. I didn't have the luxury of, of 10 years of marinating in the ideas. What kind of writing are you doing now? I'm just doing the revisions on um, another historical novel that will come out around about this time next year. And again, it's based on a remarkable true story. This time it's the true story of an extraordinary racehorse from the 1850s and 60s um, and the people around that horse and what happened to them all in the Civil War. And it's um, the true story was, uh, was just so fascinating to me that I uh, wanted to engage with it. The reason I said that I knew your voice is because I listened to the audiobook. I thought you did a fantastic job because you had your narrative voice, but you also were very capable at representing the characters' voices. And not every author who I've heard do their own audiobook is capable of doing that. I felt that with you, it seemed very natural. When you think back about that process of recording the book, what comes to mind? Well, I know that uh, I felt quite confident about it because I spent so many years reading to my boys and doing all the voices in, in the various books that I was reading to them. So I wasn't uh, nervous about taking it on. That was Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist Geraldine Brooks speaking from her home in Martha's Vineyard. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.